The reason people wear clothes is for decoration. That's the reason we wear clothes. That's the reason why fashion changes all the time and why we're so interested in fashion, fashion designers, clothing, hair products, perfumes, all of these things. And today, we don't know what's going on. There is this anxiety about not only the present, but the future. And you see that in clothing. Look around you. One person's wearing all kinds of different things. A different skirt, another skirt over that skirt. Uh, jeans that are torn and ripped apart. A variety of different jewelries and tattoos and all kinds of things. And I think it's simply people don't know what's going on any longer. You can't identify it any longer. You can't say, as we did in the past, what exactly things are going to happen or be. We don't know anymore. And I think that shows in the clothes. It's not any longer sort of a put-together look. It's this mishmash of different things saying, it's, it's too much. I don't know what's going on here. And the clothing reflects that. Welcome to this episode of Language and Culture with Dr. J. The subject of this episode is clothing and fashion. My guest today is Vincent Scassolotti, resident costume designer for the Missouri Repertory Theater and head of the costume designs program at UMKC between 1964 and 2000. Vincent has designed the costuming for more than 250 professional theater productions throughout the United States. And after 35 years of designing costumes and university teaching, Vincent joined the Kansas City Costume Company, where he continues to put his talent and knowledge to work. It is a great pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Thank you Maria. So do clothes make the man? What is the difference between mere clothes and costumes or fashion? And... Why have humans placed such importance on the way they have chosen to cover their bodies throughout time? Okay, interesting question, I think. As you know, there's a variety of reasons why people wear clothes. What we would say one is for protection, one is for warmth, one is for social status. I have a couture coat, you do not, therefore I am better than you. All of these probably are reasons for mankind wearing clothes. But essentially, the reason people wear clothes is for decoration. That's the reason we wear clothes. That's the reason why fashion changes all the time and why we're so interested in fashion, fashion designers, clothing, hair products, perfumes, all of these things. Take, for instance, even the Japanese culture of tattooing total body, that's body covering, that's decoration. Even though it serves no purpose of climate control or warmth or protection, it is pure and simply decoration. Or in Maori culture, exactly. where you decorate the face, or etc. I mean, in, in body piercings and so forth, right? They are all decorative. And I think that's essentially the reason we want to wear, wear clothing. 
it gives us some sort of importance in, in a world that oftentimes is very, very difficult to uh, traverse. And so the decoration of clothing sort of helps along that journey. I mean, it goes along with these rituals and traditions and goes into ancient cultures decorating their homes as well, I think. It's, it's decorating your body and your home as, as means of identification, yes. as a means of belonging. Or, yeah, or, or right, sure. And, and clothing as identification has always been a very important aspect of our, our experience. I mean, we recognize certain people simply by their clothing, you know, you know the doctor and his white coat, his lab coat, the nun in her uniform. We don't know who these people are, but we know, oh, that's a nun, oh, that's a doctor, oh, that's a lawyer, that's a judge. So uh, clothing helps to identify social groups. So what would you say is the difference between clothing and costumes? You know, I don't think there's really that big a difference between clothing and costume. I think when we hear the term costume, we tend to think of theatrical costume. But essentially, the term costume really isn't necessarily a theatrical term. It's just another term used simply for clothing. We, we use that term in order to oftentimes mask what we don't want other people to know about us. However, that works two ways because the ancient Greeks used masks not to hide, but to recognize the person underneath, the, the status of that person underneath. So that's what costume and clothing do. They don't necessarily hide, but they show us who we are. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. And I mean, what you were saying with the ancient Greeks, or even, even afterwards with the Italians, the Commedia dell'arte, or mm -hmm. sort of these typical costumes or, or masks or things that were worn, it's true, it hides on the one hand the identity of the, <laughs> of the actual person. Right. At the same time, it brings out the, right. the inner characteristics yeah, of, I, the, of the... Yeah, you know, and all, all, over, the, all over the world, the, the carnivals, you know, Venice, the Venetian carnival. I mean, why do they do that every year if it's not simply for the sort of identification of who we are? This is a part of who we are. And in order to tell us who we are, we need the costume to tell people that this is who we are. Interesting, interesting. And then if we go to fashion, mm -hmm. how is fashion then different? Fashion is an expression. Fashion is more like a movement. Or like it's, it's more like a trend. Yes, right. Fashion is a trend. You're absolutely right. Okay. So fashion often reflects the social, political, financial, religious phases of a particular region or a particular time. Could you maybe give us some examples of where fashion has been used very strongly to make a political statement or where fashion reflected the, the financial difficulties or the country being prosperous? Or, yeah. or Well, a lot of people think that fashion is sort of created overnight. You know, obviously fashion is not created overnight, but it's a whole lengthy process of social, economic mixtures and upheavals and, and so forth. So when we, we look at fashion and the periods of fashion and, and periods of hip hop, let's just take the 18th century, in the 17th and 18th century, um, the French Revolution, you know, brought about a total change in terms of, of fashion. 
out were the knee breeches and in were sans culotte, where long pants became um, uh, fashionable. And so that whole revolution of uh, mankind actually prompted these changes. And then if we move into the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution, where um, steam powered machines, and we had sewing machines, and we had weaving machines, and so fabric could be created a lot faster than, than before. And it could be printed now, as opposed to uh, the 18th century, where the embroidery was done in China and then transported to France or to England or to Germany to be made into, into clothing. Then we moved, for example, in the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century with world wars and so forth. Uh, all of these have a tremendous influence on what clothing is going to be, especially in the Second World War, where there was rations on fabrics and you could only have a certain amount of yardage to make a dress and so forth. And that prompted, you know, the narrow skirts, um, the tight-fitting jackets, and shoulder pads for the war effort for women to wear so that they become more, in a sense, more manly looking, in a sense that they could then uh, help out and work with men at their side um, to, to help win this, uh, uh, this war. And once the war was over, then we had Christian Dior says, now I have a new look, and yardage and yards of fabric went into skirts and so forth. So all of these trends came about not because a designer or a fashion designer says, oh, I think I shall, this is going to be the look of next year. It's because of all of these social economic upheavals that created the need for this to happen. Since you mentioned war times, you know, I, I don't know if you actually know this, I, I grew up in Romania. Mm -hmm. So so I was born in Transylvania, in Romania, mm -hmm. and, grew, and lived there until I was 12 and a half. And in Romania, people were still at the time, not anymore, but at the time, were still wearing these pantyhose that have the, the line, the seam. the seam at the back. And maybe you want to say something about that. I mean, I think that was done between the wars uh, in, in the U.S. as well. Would you? Yeah, right. Well, again part of um, uh, things that you couldn't get and one was silk stockings and that's helped the nylon industry come about to create what we now know as nylons and they were created of course with seams on them because they didn't have the technology to make the gauntlet to make the hose without without those and I remember going to high school um, where um, uh, girls used to paint the seam on their leg to pretend that they were wearing hose. Because it was such a commodity, it was, it was such an item that, exactly. that you couldn't... You couldn't, you couldn't get that fabric, you couldn't get the silk. Right, right. And in Romania with the pantyhose, with these nylons, they, there were several businesses, I don't remember what they were called anymore, but they were specialized in, in Hungarian you say fesedni, is when, when you lose one little... You know when something is, is snagged mm -hmm. and then you pick it up, you pick just that one little tiny mm -hmm. piece up. So they were specialized in mending these nylons. And yes. so you would take with a crochet needle, something look, look, oh. that looked similar to a crochet needle, and you would pick up this little seam. Yes. 
Um, yes. And I, I don't know exactly how they did it, but they were these little shops everywhere specialized. So people had these nylons for years. years. It's not, it wasn't something that you had got a snag or a run in your pantyhose and you threw it away. It was then picked up and mended uh, manually. Yes, so. yes, yes. It's amazing, it's, isn't it? It's, it is, it is. And you have to think about it. Since we're talking about the meaning of, of fashion and, and of clothes, isn't that even more meaningful? I mean, um, in, in today's market economy that, that we're, we're in, that kind of redoing to lengthen the life of a particular garment because the garment was expensive and so forth, one had to, to do that. We don't have to do that any longer because the glut of, of machine-made garments make them so inexpensive that to make a garment at home anymore is more expensive than buying a, than buying a garment today. I mean, today, the, um, by the time you buy a fabric and sewing machines and so forth, it costs more to make a garment than it is for you to go and buy a garment. So that's simply because of the way the economy is right at the moment. Now, it probably will go back again, switch back again, depending upon what the situation is, the cultural situation is. But again, just referencing back to Romania, when I was a child, my mother still, because you couldn't buy really pret-à-porter. I mean, there were some stores, but it was very difficult to find nice modern clothing. So I remember my mother having a seamstress who made all her clothes. And so she would, they would look at Western movies or uh, magazines, and they would actually make the clothes. Wasn't that more of an expression of their individuality? Yes, absolutely. It was a way to express their individuality, exactly. So isn't it by buying products that are already available, aren't we following more trends set by the fashion industry or by certain companies, right? So I'm just saying like sort of we're saying that these efforts grow out of necessity and yet that seems to be the times when when it's most creative, when most creativity, when most individuality comes comes out. We think that we live right now in a time of luxury, right? And we have we have a lot of products available to us, readily available to us, available to everybody. So there is no need to go to a seamstress and have that gown designed the way you would like it based on things that have caught your fancy or things that suit your life or, or right, which would then be more of an effort on our part, more of an investment of time, more of an investment of attention. But it would also be more of an expression of ourselves. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I think the economy, the present economy, forces us into doing certain things in terms of clothing. And I think this is where the, perhaps the fashion designer, the designer, uh, comes in, who has a vision that is opposite that forceful economic forcing you to wear certain uh, garments. And it says that there's a, possibly there's another way for us to do this. And this is what I think, this is what I believe it should look like. 
and I think that's how that sort of fashion economy thing works. Mm. Uh, the fashion designer comes forward and, and proposes mm. another option, another idea. Mm. Absolutely. But, but I think that as much as we are fascinated by fashion nowadays, the average person would still not even fathom spending that much time on his or her wardrobe. So, you know, we have these personal shoppers, we have these, we want everything to be really fast. We, and, and yet we say that we are so stylish or that we are so unique in our mm -hmm. style. But no one would take the time to define the pair of pants they want to wear and go to a seamstress and look through the fabrics and say, no, 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 this fabric, and then look at the different cuts and then go and have fittings. No one would take that time, I think, nowadays uh, in, in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also interesting because... Well, because I think um, when we're talking about sort of that fashion area, the couture area and so forth, we have to think about that as something other than simply clothing, wearing clothing. We have to think about that as some kind of art, really. It's an art. It, it's difficult for people to understand why someone would, for example, go to when Dior was working or Chanel was working and so forth, to go and have this toile made, totally in muslin first, completely, almost exactly as the outcome would be, to try it on and then to fit that, and then those fitting changes would happen, and then you'd have the same thing again to be certain that the fitting was correct. And only after that happened, the garment was cut out of the fabric. And then once the garment was cut out of the fabric and basted together, you had another fitting in that to alter the design slightly. And then Finally, the thing was finished. Well, why did people want to do that? That would take weeks and months for this garment to be made if it wasn't simply for the fact that we think that what's happening is that this fashion designer is an artist in what he or she does. And that's why we're interested in the, 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 the couture. And, and that piece is then absolutely unique. Absolutely. But now we're talking about haute couture. And what what I was talking about beforehand was this was and, and, and you know we think of haute couture as we associate it with a social with a certain social class, Correct. we associate it with a certain money and then financial status, right? So and we associate these garments with art and mm -hmm. with with something very special, with with a special event, with a special right, with a special occasion. Like I said, in Romania, and this is, this is sort of communist Romania, Soviet bloc, yeah. under a dictatorship, this is hard, hard times, this is times of hardship, and people are getting their clothes designed daily, right? Mm -hmm. So they're daily clothes designed. I, I would not suggest that these were haute couture at all. I mean, but, sure. but isn't that strange that... People in Romania in the 1970s, 1980s, were wearing clothes that were specifically cut and made for them. The shirts, the, the everyday pants. Even today, in, uh, friends of mine in Budapest, in Hungary, have, for example, their pants made by a seamstress. 
because it's you just it's just cheaper, it's just better, um, it just fits better. You can get exactly what you want, and so so I that that's, if I see such a discrepancy between the two, you know, on the one hand, haute couture, very upper class, uh, very sort of elegant, an expression of art, etc., and then sort of some of these cultures, or you don't have to go to Hungary or Romania or anything like that. If you go to a lot of Asian countries mm-hmm. where you can have uh, you go to a market mm-hmm. and you have you order three or four little gowns and they are they they're ready in in two days. Yeah, of right. course, they're not uh, they're not lined. Mm-hmm. It's not done with 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 uh, with care or anything. Mm-hmm. They are done fast. But is isn't that? Would you maybe just address that? Just well, I think part of the answer to that has to do with clothing as an exp- not only as an expression of ourselves, but it's clothing that makes us feel good. You know, and it's that kind of necessity, I think it really is a necessity in times where you have a dictatorship, for example, or economic disasters and so forth, that people tend to do these things because it makes them feel better about themselves and about the environment and about the world. And it gives them the possibility that things could be better. That's really interesting that you say that. You know, so it's sort of like they're looking for the future in terms of having these garments made because things can be better and change and that's why they're working on this. I think there's a lot to do with that. That's really interesting what you just said that and it made me think of something that my husband said. My my husband spent a year in Nicaragua helping orphaned children. Mm -hmm. As you may know, Nicaragua is quite poor and one of the things that he found fascinating was that, you know, people were living in these little sheds and had very little. They had only one pair of pants and one one white shirt. And this white shirt was washed, hand-washed, and ironed, and starched, and everybody was stepping out of these little, very simple mud huts with these absolutely beautifully kept clean garments and one of the things my my mother-in-law even even mentioned this because she went to visit him there and she was saying you know sort of they were they were sweeping out their little huts and there was just all this dust and all this kind of dirt in the street and everywhere and yet people would walk around with these immaculately white starched shirts and dresses and things and that's interesting yeah because it has a tendency to make them feel better about themselves and about the situation that they're that that they are in that this the house can be full of dust and dirt and so forth but they still can be beautiful that's interesting wow what a power right that 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 clothes have yeah it's power it it gives us it gives one the sense of power that is lacking in their social situation or economic situation that still they can be powerful because they can wear this shirt that's beautifully done right right that's very interesting so another another question for you what we wear can unite us Mm -hmm. right as in traditional folkloric garments or uniforms or religious symbols or anything like that at the same time certain clothing can also be a source of conflict to identify, for example, gangs or different this, different subcultures. Maybe comment uh, a little bit on this. Well, that's always been the case, though, hasn't it? That clothing has always been used as a symbol of rank and so forth. Um, as you you mentioned, um, uh, gangs have 
their own particular brand of clothing that identifies them to other members of the gang, no matter what part of the country that they're in. So in this instance, again, as we mentioned, clothes becomes a form of identification and a necessary form of identification because we want to know what's going on. We want to know, be able to know what people, who people are by what their clothes are. You know, but because um, that that it, it is a calming effect because um, doesn't it doesn't make us tense anymore. Whereas if you don't know what the person is by the clothing, then that person can be somebody who is dangerous to you. Uh, whereas if if we can identify them with the clothing, then that that helps us. Absolutely. I was just thinking about sort of in war situations, if, if we go absolutely back in time, well, <laughs> back when there were these wars that you actually had physical combat and contact right there, you had to know very quickly who your enemy was. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And clothing did that. Right. Uniforms did that. Uniforms, yes. right. You right. could tell right. by the uniform who, who was for or against you. Right. You know, right. So that. Yeah, again, the, the, the idea of uniform is sort of necessary in, in terms of clothing, too, because it's all, most everything we wear is, in a sense, a uniform of identification. Right. You know? Well, a conscious decision to uh, sort of exactly. identify ourselves right. as a citizen. Yeah. Right. So how do you think that's different? That, that's also very interesting. If you go, we're, we're in Kansas City, and if you go to a grocery store in Kansas City, people will be wearing whatever. Right. Uh, anything and everything, right? So mm -hmm. you might have someone in their high heel shoes coming right. from work, and you might have someone in their sweatpants. Right. You would never find this in, well, I never say never, but a lot more rare to find in, in Europe. So mm -hmm. you're not going to find anybody with hair curlers in the grocery store. I mean... I know that when I go shopping in Germany, I, I make sure that I look appropriate, right? That I have sort of proper pants on and proper shoes on. And it's just kind of, it's, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to generalize, but I feel it's kind of frowned upon. So you would never go kind of frumpy looking into a store. And in the, in the States you do. So where do you think that comes from or, or how... Well, I think those are cultural, social, and cultural differences among among peoples and about, among countries. Uh, in America, there was a time when that was that was the the, the, the case. The or, case. Yeah, yeah. And we did that in the case. You remember? Nineteen um, fifties. Yes, everybody 1950s, looked at fifties, right? And uh, your mom would always say, "No, you cannot go out looking that way, or you have to dress in a certain way, and and, and so forth." But the changes in the culture over the last 100 and 200 years have, have come about. Um, new waves, um, new senses of freedom, the feminine revolution, and so forth, a freeing uh, of these uh, ideas of the past uh, as old-fashioned and not workable for a modern family. That's, I think, the differences occur, those cultural differences occur because of all of those those ideas. And that's what we see in America as opposed to what we might see, as you mentioned, in Germany or other countries. Or France, or yes. Where it's socially still acceptable to do and to wear certain things at certain times.
times. Right, right. It's interesting. I mean, the U.S. Uh, sort of students of mine who who have been exchange students in 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 the U.S. or just kind of experiences of people in in the U.S. They often mention that it's it's so interesting to to see how Americans dress up for work and then will as soon as they are at home go into the the sweatpants and the things and sort of that is private sphere that is relaxation time that is so so there's there's a very strong you know transition from the work persona and work clothing and then the right but that same idea as the the uniform yes that's the uniform that your work uniform that you are identified with so it, you know you wear those clothes so that those around you can identify you as part of this company that I work for. And so when when you go home, you are no longer part of that company. And so you have to address appropriately for this new version of yourself right. at five o'clock in the afternoon. Right, right. I, I do this as well. And I know this has gotten sort of looks in, in Germany. You know, sort of as an American woman, you put on makeup in the morning. So, so that's kind of like Maybe that's your mask. Maybe that's your little, <laughs> that's your face to the public, right? So you put on makeup and you, I tend to put on some jewelry or something like that. And then you have your nice purse. Mm -hmm. And then I will go to the, to the doctor's office in, well, I mean, just kind of, you know, nice sweatpants and, and, and a t-shirt because if you're going to the doctor's, well, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, but you'll have the nice purse and the, the makeup and, and jewelry. And I think that's sort of also in, that's kind of strange in, in, in Germany because you'll either be in sweatpants and then no makeup and just, you know, hair back in a, in a, with a little rubber band, or you will dress up. So mm -hmm. e even things like this are, are so, so different, I think. That, yes. that. So one of the things that I really wanted to ask you, as the, the listeners might know, uh, because we will have aired that episode already, I held a speech on Molière and me uh, in November uh, 2021 at the Kansas City Museum here in Kansas mm -hmm. City. And uh, uh, the Kansas City Costume Company helped uh, put together mm -hmm. the, the costumes that I was showing and that I was displaying and, and, and using for the speech. And you were uh, absolutely essential uh, in this, in finding the, the, the appropriate co clothing and, and in um, telling me how to represent, because I was trying to just sort of represent, I was trying to represent centuries, right, and, yes. and, and these main movements. And I found it so fascinating, all the things that you were always uh, adding to the costumes and saying, well, no, 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 you have to notice this and notice that. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, is there, do you think it's possible? I think you could probably fill several university semesters of, of, of lessons with this, but could we maybe give the listeners an idea of how fashion evolved throughout the centuries? Like sort of maybe start wherever you'd feel comfortable and then just kind of define the lines and talk about what was worn underneath and above and feathers and hats and sort of what was added. Do you think, would, would you feel comfortable doing that? Sure. Well, I think um, all these kind of changes, first of all, occur, as we've talked about before, not out of nowhere. I mean, they occur because of the cultural, the social, the economic, and so forth of, of the country or the place that you're, that you're in that creates it. But if we look back through time past, we note that fashion or clothing didn't change very often. 
I mean, there were periods of hundreds of years, for example, in Rome. I mean, the Roman toga lasted for hundreds of years with no change whatsoever. As the culture develops and society develops and technology develops, we begin to see these narrowing of times of changes in clothing. <laughs> so rather than hundreds of years, we're going down to 50 years change. If you take, for example, the 17th century or the 18th century, there's a distinct difference between the first 50 years of either one of those periods and the second 50 years of those periods. When the technology becomes more um, important, uh, then uh, we'll see those periods changing to narrower and narrower. In the 19th century, for example, those periods of 50 years were reduced to 25 years, and then a change occurred. And then when we get up to the 19th century and the 20th century, those changes seem to occur like 10 years and less and so forth. And it's all because of new technology that made that possible. And the new technology was simply part of the social, the cultural, the economic period, the times that they were in. And at the end of each one of those periods where the change occurred, we'll see the biggest hacks, the biggest bustles, where they couldn't possibly get any larger, that it would have to change. And so from the 17th century with the, with the panache, the, the, the big feather and the wide brims, the brims became so wide that they couldn't support themselves. And so they had to pin them up in the front and on the back. And so we have the bicorn and the tricorn of the 18th century. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and uh, so then once the French Revolution occurred, when you no longer had silks and satins and laces, it was the period that the tailor was most important in men's clothing because there was no lace any longer. And so then the fit of the garment would became absolutely essential because all you had was wool and linen to produce. And that was the advent of the beginning of the tailor. So, forth. so all of these time periods are because of the new technologies that were becoming available or the, the, the latest war, for example, that occurred. Really interesting. Really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And the, the uh, paniers, for example, that we associate with the 18th century were adopted because of uh, Marie Antoinette's love of this little town, <laughs> of these little farm villages and so forth, where the girls would carry baskets on, either, on their shoulders on either side of them. And that's where that idea developed for the paniers, the side paniers. They, again, grew larger and larger and larger into court costumes and so forth that were extraordinary, you know. But that's what I said before, they became so large that it became impossible. And then they were they were sort of pushed to the back, right? Yes, and then they pushed were pushed to the back, right? Right. right. And because they, right, they <laughs> right pushed to the back, and 
and before that, then we have the cage, which we're talking about the old uh, South in the middle part of the 19th century. And um, they grew larger and larger and larger until they couldn't get any larger. And then that style changed into the bustle where they shifted it all to, all to the back. But it didn't occur because somebody decided that it was too large. It occurred because of the time and the culture and, and so forth. And, and because, for example, the uh, hoops were so large that during uh, uh, women could get, catch on fire <gasps> and not know they were burning. Oh my um, because, you know, <laughs> next to the fireplace, because they were so large, they didn't know what was happening until it was too, it was too late. You know, and, and, and the corsetry of hundreds, for thousands of years has always been part of uh, a, a tiger, both for men and for, for women. So the, the shape of a particular time period was governed by the corset that was worn for that particular period. So, so it's always been a part of the culture and the society in which we live. It just changes over the period of years. So what's upcoming, who knows? Yeah, what, what do you think is coming? I don't know. No I, idea. I, it changes too quickly. And, and, and it made me think about that because you were saying, well, there, there were these hundreds of years, thousands of years, you know, sort of where, where nothing really changed that much. And then sort of it went to change every hundred years, every 50 years, every, you know, and sort of, and now... We, we tend to change, but we don't change as much. I mean, we'll change the color, we'll change the cut, we'll change, make it longer, shorter, the fabrics, maybe the colors especially. But if we look at sort of technology changing, you know, are we, are we to sort of, you know, think kind of like science fiction? Are we going to be wearing these, these body suits that we're going to be traveling through space? In? <laughs> so, or, or, uh, it's possible, you know, it's really possible. Right. Yeah. It's because I seriously doubt that we will. Or do you think? Can you imagine? Let's just kind of, you know, uh, who knows how this? How, you know, in today's world, everything's digitalized. So who knows how how long this podcast will exist? Maybe in in, in five hundred years, someone will discover this episode and and then talk about how how what we thought fashion would would look like. But can you imagine? going back towards something that we had in the 17th, 18th century, sort of these larger gowns and things? No. I, I can't so. imagine that. No. I don't think that's ever going, to, um, ever going to happen. Why? Again, technology and the advance of civilization, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. I mean, one of the things that it was in, is interesting to me that still holds, that, that still hangs on for a long period of time is Pants. denim. Yeah, or denim, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's been a long time, since the 19th century, actually, that denim first became popular. Yeah. And it's still the popular choice in terms of uh, trousers for yeah. both men and for women. What it symbolizes, I'm not particularly sure. You know, I think it is a sense that uh, we are part of the common man. We are part of the working man the working woman, we are part of a class that's coming up. So, but it's interesting, you know, it, it's difficult to, to sort of uh, imagine the time in which you're living, to see it in, 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 in perspective, because you're in it, yeah, and you're living it, so you just don't really kind of see it. It's only a little bit later 
that you can look back over it and, and see the trend of, oh, why that why denim was so popular yeah. for so long a period of time. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. And, if you, and if you think about it, sort of, you know, the, the, the past 100 years, how fashion has developed. The 1950s is very pronounced and, mm. and clear, 60s maybe, but then the 70s changes very much. Very much. The 80s changes again very much, and we can, you know, now everybody who's listening can can kind of know mm-hmm. what the 80s looks like. 90s, kind of, maybe less, mm-hmm. yeah. and then since then, again, it changes so rapidly now. But there is no since the 1990s. Sure, maybe the 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 waistline for for pants is higher or lower, or pant legs will be a little bit wider or less wide. But it's not these. You know, like the 50s or the 70s, where there were, or 80s even, you know, where there were these like clear stamps of, of yeah. change. And that's par- partly because people don't care anymore. Uh. I don't mean that they don't care about clothes anymore. They simply don't care if the pants are high or low or, or the, the shirt is tight or loose, as we did back 50 years ago. So do you think that's a, that's because people are more individualistic or more sort of don't don't need to belong as much or Yeah, I don't I think that's true. They don't need to belong as much any longer. They can they can be quote themse- as themselves as themselves. So everybody to each his own. Yes, to each his own. But is does that make it but, but that that's I think what's really fascinating. Um I went to a private school and we had a uniform. Mm-hmm. And back in Romania I had a uniform and in Texas where I where I went to school uh, I had a uniform. And the interesting thing is that you know we it, it was it was defined there were these blue uh, pants or blue shorts that were down to the knee it was it was a school uniform you had to wear or a skirt for the girls the same white shirt the same you had a blue sweater i mean it was like there were just certain pieces of clothing you could buy there was no makeup no nail polish no anything allowed and i remember my best friend and i taking a, a, a needle and thread and sewing the hemline up by i don't know five centimeters, I mean, and we were absolute rebels. And sort of the whole school knew that we had kind of hiked up our skirts. I used to paint one nail, my pinky nail, red. And sort of as a protest, I would sort of put it out sometimes and everybody saw it. And sort of when the teacher would come, I would hide my finger. And little tiny details like that. I wouldn't wear the right shoes. I would wear little boots, little booties, and sort of under my pants. And but everybody knew, and I would like purposely kind of pull it up a little bit and show it off. Things like that. Well, that was part of me trying to be individual, trying to be something other than the clan, trying to break out of that social group into be yourself. I think that's what the 20th century and the 21st century is all about in terms of clothing, to be yourself. But isn't it, uh, if I look at uh, young people today, it's so much more difficult to be yourself because I could rebel by just painting pinky nail red or the gestures that I could make, you know, were so small and, and they made such an impact. And because nowadays pretty much anything goes, you could walk around with something super colorful or super large or super small or half yeah. naked. So I think that for young people today, it's actually a lot more difficult because it's so accepted. It's a lot more difficult to be unique. 
Well, I think it's because a lot of it, because we don't know what's going on. There is this anxiety about not only the present, but the future. The anxiety of the fact that the future may not happen. And you see that in clothing. I mean, you and I sit here today, and you are what we would say coordinated. You have a black sweater on, you have black trousers, you have black shoes, and so forth. Look around you. One person's wearing all kinds of different things. A different skirt, another skirt over that skirt. Uh, jeans that are torn and ripped apart. Um, um, a, a variety of different jewelries and tattoos and all kinds of things. And I think it's simply people don't know what's going on any longer. You can't identify it any longer. You can't say, as we did in the past, what exactly things are going to happen or be. We don't know anymore. And I think that shows in the clothes. It's not any longer sort of a put-together look. It's this mishmash of different things saying, it's, it's too much. I don't know what's going on here. And the clothing reflects that. That's really interesting. In Argentina, I saw, uh, uh, we were taking a little cruise to the glaciers, and I saw a um, family, I, I, from what they were wearing, I thought they were quite wealthy, mm. and they had a teenage son with them, sort of the parents very, you know, nice, these little cashmere sweaters and things like that, and then the two younger kids also dressed very nicely, but sort of this teenage boy who was wearing and I thought it was very cool but I thought did he do that himself or is this some like really expensive uh, uh, designer or, or brand that I just don't know his pants were basically put together from two pairs of pants so yeah. as if as if you know you had grown out of one and then uh, mended it with the with the other but it was it was very stylish so this was either done very well or he really did buy it I couldn't see a brand on it and maybe maybe some of the listeners are, are laughing at me because I should know this brand but sort of you know the the bottom part of the pants were a different color different mm. completely right. different type of pants and then he had like sort of different seams uh that were from one pair of pants and not the other the the pockets were from the other pants uh there were just like little pieces uh of of this and I and I and I think that's what you just now said. Yeah, yeah this sort of we're sort of what is going on. What's that's going very on. what's going on. I, I, I can't keep it all together. That's in really interesting. So do you think that could be maybe a new trend? Sure. That absolutely. that someone finally says, Okay, I know what's going on or you know, sort of sort of this yeah, going right. towards a type of uniform because we feel like, okay, I need that clarity. Right. Yes, I think so. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, one one last question that I that I think uh, we should we should address. You actually come from theater, mm. and your specialty is theater clothing. Correct. So let's talk about that for a second. How is theater clothing different, and what are the considerations? I know you've you've said this in interviews, and also even for my speech, you, it was very important to you that I that I mentioned that these are not museum pieces. That some of the zippers right. that are yes. on, or some of the clips are, that are on the garments, are not true to the period. So, of course,
course, that's one aspect. So when when you're changing into these garments backstage, you need to make it easier to to go in and out of them. So, but maybe some of that. So, so the considerations for theater costuming, and then also what is most fun about uh, designing theater costuming. And, and well, first of all, let's say that a costume is only a costume when it is on an actor on the stage before an audience, then it's a costume. Other than that, it's simply old clothes. When it's off the actor and hanging on, on the rack, it's just old clothes. It has no meaning any longer. It only has meaning when it is on the actor in a play. That's when you really have a costume. When you create costumes, we have to look for a variety of different things, as you mentioned. We have to make a costume easy and accessible to wear, for one thing, or as close as we can. We have to use zippers where hooks and eyes would have been used before because you can't take the time to hook, hook, hook and eyes. You have to zip up really quickly and so forth. So those things differentiate then what we wear every day for to a, a costume. So what I like most is beginning the process. That seems fascinating to me. Of how in your mind, how are you going to deal with this play, with these people and so forth? What are they going to look like? So well, you forth. set the whole image, don't yeah, you? Exactly. You have to sort of set the whole image in your mind and so forth. So every designer, you know, works differently, naturally, depending upon their background and, and, and so forth. Mine is very slow. You know, I sort of have to mull it over in my head for a long time until I begin to see it in my mind, what these things should is going to look like in terms of... Um, uh, what I think of they should look like. And then you begin the work of studying the, the script, usually, and to see what the author tells you uh, about who these people are, which may be different than you, what you thought, and so then you change your position on it. So it's that beginning process which is interesting to me, and also it's sort of the selection of fabrics and the choice of fabrics and, and the colors. And so, generally, in terms of color, you, you tend to choose colors that you particularly are drawn to and like and so forth. I mean, that's natural. But there are times when you have to go up against that right. for, for, the, for the script. And so, all of those detailed kinds of things are working. And then, ultimately, to, to see it then on the actor on the stage is really a gratifying experience. I bet, I bet. It's, so you create the general atmosphere and, and the actor brings it to life. Correct. That's, exactly. It's yeah. the actor and the play that brings the whole thing, uh, the whole thing to, to life. Because, I mean, without that, it's sort of useless, you know, to just make clothes. Sure. You know, sure. You know, it's not, we're not making museum clothes, you know, in the design. We're going to, we're, we're going to preserve these garments as museum pieces like uh, the Met has now, the Met costume division has all these garments of the designers and so forth. We're not, we're not doing that kind of thing. 
And I know here at the Kansas City Costume Company, you do professional productions, but you do also some school productions. And so that must be really fun to do it for the little ones and and try to adapt things. (laughs) It it is. It's a fascinating experience to work in all those different media. So what what would be the your favorite, absolute favorite of all times production that you designed clothes for? There were actually two. Okay. Uh, one was a production of King Lear that I did for The Rep that I particularly liked. Uh, and um, that would be my sort of number one thing. And then, again, for The Rep, several productions of Chekhov that I designed that I really liked. So those would be my top. And then a third and a fourth. Okay. Amadeus, I liked very well. And then another production called Royal Hunt of the Sun. Okay. So so would you mind going into each of them? Why why each of them? Number one was King Lear. Why? Because of... um, Partly the techniques, different techniques that I use in, in, in making the costumes. Different art using of paints uh, and painted costumes. Oh, wow. Um, that I hadn't done before, which was turned out, which I liked very, uh, very well. So that's the reason for uh, King Lear. And I mentioned Royal Hunt because of what I told you about the Inca clothes that I had no knowledge of until I began studying it and researching it and thought how fascinating and how absolutely stunning they were, you know, the feathers and so forth, which was totally um, amazing. And um, Chekhov, because it's quiet, I always think of Chekhov as a quiet play, you know. and uh, I, that's why I like working on, on them. So, yeah. so, so how does that manifest in the clothing when you say it was quiet? Well, it manifests itself in line, in color, the silhouette, all of those things. For some of the characters, a softer line, a softer tone, a softer color that you begin to use, that you use for them. And then Amadeus, I... Oh, yeah. Quite the opposite. Eighteenth <laughs> century flash, dash, Mozart, and so forth, and um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a fun. Okay. So there's lots of different ones that oh, I, yeah. over the period over the years that um, I like. And what fascinating work! I mean, what what in the Missouri Repertory Theater? I mean, you know, they're they're. <laughs> I, I have I have had the the fortune, the great the good fortune to have gone to theaters around the world and. Uh-huh. and and to museums around the world. And seriously, uh, to this day, my favorite theater is the Missouri Repertory Theater mm-hmm. and the Nelson Atkins oh, Museum of Art. They're, they're just so special. And a lot of I, this is very important, I think, for the listeners. I think a lot of times Kansas get, gets a bad rep. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of written off as right there in the Midwest. Even my favorite uh, TV uh personality and uh, talk show host, the, uh, Stephen Colbert, oh, you know, yeah. uh, makes fun of Topeka and yeah, makes right. fun of Kansas. And oh, I think, oh, Stephen, come on, I like you so much. Don't make fun of Kansas. <laughs> but uh, the, there are these greats. I mean, uh, um, the Lead Center in Lawrence. Yeah. The, there's so many. There, there, there's, such a, there's such a richness of culture in, in yeah, Kansas well. City. And, and the Missouri Repertory Theater, oh, yeah, well. what... F- 
absolutely theater. professional, amazing productions. And theater and in Kansas City is due to one person, and that's Patricia McElrath, right, who started the Missouri Repertory Theater. So that branched out. So almost any professional theater in Kansas City now has roots with Patricia McElrath. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It has been really great talking great. to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do great. this interview. Thank you again for all your help and for doing this interview with me. This is Dr. J signing out. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.